from the CPRI Knowledge Hub and CPRIHub.org. This is Research Minutes, a weekly look at new and important research in education. Today we're talking online instruction, increasingly offered in American high schools as a means to help struggling students recover lost credits and push forward toward graduation. It's actually become a pretty big component of the instruction that's that's being delivered. In this particular district that we're studying, about 40% of all the graduating seniors in, in a recent academic year had taken at least one course online. And really important, 20% of all credits earned in the district in middle and high schools were done online. We're speaking with Vanderbilt University's Carolyn Heinrich who recently led a multi-year study of dozens of urban high schools to understand how, and how well, students are interacting with online courses. On average, the associations between online course taking and their test scores, or their how much they were gaining in their learning, was negative. And we were particularly concerned because the more years of online course taking that students engaged in, the more negative those associations became. Heinrich joins CPRI Knowledge Hub Managing Editor Keith Humiller to discuss her findings and what they could mean for schools, students, and stakeholders across the country. Types of support and scaffolding that really need to be provided for this to be an effective online tool often aren't available and nor could the district afford to possibly provide it. So suggest that maybe we need to back off of the increasingly heavy use of these online course taking systems. That's right now on Research Minutes. Hi, and welcome to Research Minutes. I'm Keith Umeller, Managing Editor of the CPRI Knowledge Hub. Today, I'm happy to be joined by Carolyn Heinrich, a renowned researcher who wears a couple of different hats at Vanderbilt University. She's a professor of public policy and education in the Department of Leadership, Policy and Organizations at Peabody College, and she's a professor of economics in the College of Arts and Sciences. Carolyn, it's a pleasure to chat with you today. Thank you, Keith. So we're here today to discuss your new study published in the American Educational Research Journal, uh, co-authored with Jennifer Darling Aduana, Anna Lee Good, and Emily Cheng. And it's titled, A Look Inside Online Educational Settings in High School, Promise and Pitfalls for Improving Educational Opportunities and Outcomes. The topic, digital instruction, seems to be popping up more and more as online courses continue to expand in K-12 education. But as you know, in your study, it's a complicated topic. There are a variety of uses and approaches to digital instruction. And while online courses offer promise in terms of increasing access for disadvantaged students, research suggests that results are often mixed. So could we just start with some context? What do we know about the use and impact of digital instruction in K-12 schools in recent years? And, and what led you to conduct this study? So it is the case that um, schools have been increasingly turning to some kind of digital technology to deliver instruction. And when we first observed this, we were studying uh, the effects of the No Child Behind Act in terms of its requirements for schools to provide out-of-school tutoring. And over the course of our study, which took place over five years, around 2008, 2009, we're seeing increasingly uh, providers of instruction, this was supplemental instruction, using digital tools. So they range from you know, having students do tutoring on 
tablets or laptops to uh, logging online and accessing a tutor. Sometimes the tutor was one-on-one, sometimes it was in a group. And we started paying attention to this because we were seeing that many of the providers were taking on very large numbers of students. And we were listening into some of those sessions and had some concerns about the extent to which the children were actually being well served by that modem of delivery of instruction. And then as we were working with some very large school districts, urban school districts across the nation, we noticed that this was becoming more a part, not just of supplemental instruction, but of regular or core instruction. And this led us to propose our study to look inside, you know, what is happening inside the learning with a digital platform. So, you know, if you are inside a classroom, a traditional classroom, you see the teacher interacting with the students and how they're learning. It may be very different inside a digital platform where the instruction may be delivered asynchronously, which means the instructor isn't directly interacting with the student. It's, it's you know, a pre-set video and the student has to consume that instruction on their own. So, that was kind of what led us to think about how well is this going to work for students and students of different types who are being directed to that type of instruction. Gotcha. And your study, it looks at online education in a large urban school district, specifically across 46 high schools, to determine essentially which students are taking online courses, how they're taking those courses, and how they fare academically as a result. So could you just give us a general overview of the scope of your project and, and how you went about answering those questions? Sure. So we we ended up focusing in this study on the type of platform where the online instruction is provided by a private vendor. And this particular vendor is in all 50 states in the nation and also in eight of the 10 largest uh, school districts. And so basically, the district's arrange a contract with the vendor, and then the vendor provides essentially the entire course content and instruction, right? So the courses that the students are accessing have been developed by the vendor, the instructors are in the instructional videos, and we're focusing on high schools because what we see is the largest use of this program is for students who fail a course in the traditional classroom and then go on online to repeat that class. Now, it's a case that sometimes students may also take courses in there to access content or courses that they don't have available in their high school. And so that might be, for example, their elective courses. But we're largely finding that most of the students are taking core courses. And so the questions we had that kind of set up the scope of our, our project were, you know, who is being directed to take the courses online? And again, I mentioned it, it's often students who are failing, but we can provide a little more context. You know, we, we've seen the largest or high schools where the very large fractions of students are using those are specialty schools, for example, where Students may have been pregnant or parenting teens, as students who've been suspended or interacting with the juvenile justice system and are coming back into the classroom. But overall, uh, in this particular district that we're studying, about 40% of all the graduating seniors in, in recent academic year 
had taken at least one course online and really important, 20% of all credits earned in the district in middle and high schools were done online. So it's actually become a pretty big component of the instruction that's that's being delivered. And so we're interested in who's taking them, how are they interacting with the system, and then how does that affect their learning and other outcomes that gives an idea of how they're progressing academically. And so we wanted this to be a study where we combined methods. So the school district worked it out with the vendor in their contract to provide us access to the data where it's very micro data in the sense that for every student in the district who uses a system, we know each time they log in, how long they're in there, what courses they're in, how much time they spend it, how much time they're idle, what they complete, they do an assessment, if they finish a video. And this is now more than 10 million student records that we have, but we've also been inside the schools. So we've conducted to date now more than 300 observations. We've interviewed instructors, we've interviewed staff systematically to really see how this is being delivered in the classroom. And I can say that this has been really important because if we were only working with the large-scale data we get from the vendor, we might have a very different perspective of exactly how this is being used and what the students are getting out of it if we weren't going inside the classrooms. So really a thorough, thorough picture of, of each of these three lines of inquiry. Yes. And over about five years, um, we've been working on this. And you already touched on this a little bit when you were discussing how students primarily use online instruction for, for what's called credit recovery, trying to go back and retake a failed course. But could you maybe expand on that a little bit uh, in regards to your first line of inquiry? Which students are taking online courses? What did your study discover? We were looking across the, you know, the four grades and um, we did find that over time, the district started discouraging the use of the younger students, the ninth graders and 10th graders. So they're finding that they're not quite ready, you know, for sometimes in the case of reading levels, but also in self-regulation, right? Upper classrooms tend to be more motivated. They want to get the credits to graduate. And so we found the upperclassmen using the system a little bit more efficiently. But we've also seen, for example, there's some special populations of students for whom the traditional classroom environment may not fully meet their needs of their parenting or they have other obligations from having been in the juvenile justice system. We also have seen students who are working part-time and, and so they will come in and do online classes and then, and then work the rest of the day. But, you know, in general, these are students who have struggled in the regular classroom. And so the most consistent predictor of who's taking classes online is that they've failed a course. And for the districts, one of the reasons we've heard this, not just from our study district, but from others is, as we presented our work, the districts see this as it is a lot cheaper to send a student to take a course online than to take another seat in the classroom that then crowds the incoming classes of students who are taking a course for the first time. But what it looks like in practice is then that these students often go to a lab-style classroom, right, with many different monitors, and they get behind it, and then they're all taking different courses in the classroom and mostly having, again, to be kind of self-regulating in terms of their progress. Um, over time, the district's figured out ways to try to help motivate students, but it requires students to be prepared to learn with that kind of system. Uh, that brings us to your, your second line of inquiry, where you sought to learn how students are actually interacting with online courses and what structural factors were either impeding 
are supporting their success in those courses. So what did you find there? So yeah, so as I was mentioning, often the students will go to these lab style classrooms and then the students may be taking a range of different courses. So one of the first kind of structural factors we found that was making it difficult is that it's really hard for an instructor in a classroom to provide content support. So support to students who may be struggling with, let's say, a math course or a science course or, or a language instruction course to provide content support when a teacher may not be specialized in all these different content areas. So we've had teachers saying, you know, I've, I've tried to watch the videos myself so I can understand how to help them. But sometimes they just have to say, I'm sorry, I can't help you. Or another thing we've seen is that for this type of classroom, we've seen higher rates of substitute teachers present in the classroom. So for example, we've documented substitute teachers who just come in the classroom and say, I'm sorry, I'm not going to be able to help you today. They're lucky to be able to help the students just with the login issues that sometimes happen. Some of the other things we've seen is that, again, in a, a classroom where students are kind of directing themselves, they easily distract each other. We often see students, you know, they have headphones, but they maybe have them plugged into their iPhone listening to music instead of doing that. And it's very easy for them to, to get distracted, to go offline to other websites. And so we've seen, you know, as students may be struggling with content, one easy out for them is just to go Google for answers, um, you know, when they get to an assessment rather than actually trying to work with an instructor to get the content. So we've seen very little live teacher interaction with the students, which is in some sense, not necessarily the way that these programs are supposed to be rolled out. You know, if you look at the vendors documentation, they have this vision for students using the system with blended learning where the live instructor is working, interacting with them, but it just, it's not really facilitated in, in kind of the model where you have lots of students repeating different types of courses grouped together. And you're also in some sense grouping all these students, right? In a classroom who have been struggling or failed in the traditional classroom. And so that also affects who their peers are around them and maybe how they see themselves in the school based on where they're taking their classes. Wow. That's really interesting. I, I would imagine that as a young student, if I had the option to Google some answers, I, I might I might take that. <laughs> Well, and, and honestly, the students, we, we kind of solve our time. I think that there have been question banks set up. So we now see them going to specific websites. And so, you know, that shouldn't surprise us if it's used in all 50 states and in a lot of the big school districts that students would figure out a way to, to share information like that to pass their assessments more quickly and easily. Sure. So given all of that and this amazing amount of sort of robust detail that you've you've captured on these students that brings us i guess to the big question which is did it work how did these students fare academically after enrolling in online courses so we saw a fairly large fraction of the students struggling to make progress in the classes and over time the school district tried a range of strategies to help with this so you know, trying to motivate students, limiting the number of courses they could start so that they wouldn't be doing just a little on one, a little another, and not getting very far. So they tried to develop systems where, you know, they would disable a course or take a student out of a course and force them to engage with an instructor. But oftentimes it meant the student to come back to, to finish a course. So we saw clearly implications for course progression and whether students actually complete past the courses. And then again, I think that's part of what motivated these short 
term strategies to like, oh, well, I'm bored with the video. I, I The video, sometimes um, the instructional video be at too high a level for the student's reading level, or we saw students were English language learners, the accommodations were inadequate. And that's where I think it pushed to students just, you know, ignoring the instructional videos, getting to the assessments, figuring out. And so we would see students kind of repeatedly trying the assessments, getting an answers, coming back and until they could get enough to, to pass through. And then, uh, so that was one of one concern, right, about how students are actually getting and earning the credits if, if they're not really learning. And so in addition to looking at the progression, we looked at their test scores. And we do not see positive relationships between student use of online course taking and their test scores. And what we did was we, we compared students. So both students' performance, looking at the same student, the performance in online courses, and then the performance when they were not in online courses on their on their test scores, as well as comparing students who were similar, who took courses online, to students who didn't take courses online. And we, different methodological strategies we applied, we consistently find no positive relationship, and in fact, negative relationship on average. And we also found that the more courses and the more years students spend in online courses, the more negative those effects get. And, you know, as from what we observed in the classrooms, I'm not really surprised. So because of the challenges we are seeing with students progressing in the course system and our concerns about whether they were actually you know, really engaging with the instructional videos um, or just trying to find you know, the quickest path to completing the courses and getting their credits, we also wanted to look at how students were faring in terms of their learning. And, and so we used their test scores, kind of standardized tests that that students take um, at the beginning end of the year, we wanted to see how those students were either gaining um, in their learning as measured by their their gains or uh, changes in, in test scores from early in the year to the end of the school year. And so we we could compare students so that their progression when they were taking online courses and when they were not taking online courses to so look at a given student, as well as to compare students who took courses online with students who were similar to them but did not take courses online. And what we found is that the students taking online courses did not appear to be making positive gains in terms of their learning. In fact, on average, the associations between online course taking and their test scores or their how much they were gaining in their learning was negative. And we were particularly concerned because the more years of online course taking that students engaged in or the larger number of their courses that they were they were taking online, the more negative those associations became and statistically significantly so. And so, you know, clearly the type of student taking their courses online all four years might be more distinctive. Kids who are really struggling or like I said, maybe having additional issues, but these were the kids that were being directed to take their courses online. So, you know, what we saw and in the, the classroom, these kids really struggling. And then I was able, for example, to talk to a student who was just on a, getting ready to, to go through graduation. And she had taken her courses all four years in high school. She had changed high schools at, at one point, but continued to you know be sent to the online course taking system to complete courses. And one thing she conveyed is that she realized she'd had like no hands-on learning in her time in high school. And she missed that kind of 
also engagement with her peers and discussions in a classroom. So we have to think about how we are using these these systems for students and, and the kind of learning experiences that they may not be getting. If you're taking your course, for example, your science course online, and you have a lab, you know, what you are doing, you know, is is essentially very different than what you'd be doing in a classroom where you're actually, you know, pouring chemicals or taking measurements that you can see versus, you know, trying to measure with something online and then selecting a multiple choice answer uh, as to whether your your measurement was correct. And so you can imagine that for some of these courses, experience is very different. With the lack of content support in the classroom, there are limited opportunities for students to really engage with the content, learn and have kind of a, a give and take that you might have in a traditional classroom. And, and I think students were, were missing that. Gotcha. So what do you think are the implications here, either for practitioners, school leaders, policymakers, families, or other stakeholders who are working with or having conversations right now about digital instruction? So, you know, I've talked with school district leaders as we presented this research, in addition, outside of our our school, study school district, and we regularly communicate with them um, and, and give them um, feedback on what we're finding. But, you know, the, the challenge here for large urban school districts that are, you know, con- continuously or consistently financially constrained in what they're trying to do to serve their students and, and working with student populations, many of which do have needs like um, English language learners and other special educational needs and social emotional needs, you know, they're struggling to deliver the online instruction in ways that um, you know, the private vendor intends where the instruction will be blended with a live teacher who could provide that kind of content assistance. It's simply structurally very difficult for them to do. And so, you know, what we see is that the types of support and scaffolding that really need to be provided for this to be an effective online tool often aren't available and nor could the district afford to possibly provide it. So suggest that Maybe we need to back off of the heavy, increasingly heavy use of these online course taking systems, really think about how can you do it well and who are the populations that you are trying to serve with this and and what are their needs that you may or may not be meeting with these systems. And so, but I think there's a, it's, it it runs up against a challenge that districts have. This is a fairly cheap way to get students to earn credits and complete graduation. I think you may have heard there's been a lot of kind of talk in, in the media as well as in among those doing research about whether the rapid increases that have been seen in high school graduation rates in, in districts where some districts have, you know, specifically themselves tied it to the use of these online course taking systems where students can recover credits more quickly. Are we sacrificing learning for the students? And you know, what are going to be the longer term implications of that? So again, you know, the practical implications for school districts are to think about do you have the capacity or the ability to develop the capacities to deliver the digital instruction in ways that really help students to learn? Can you provide the adequate content support assistance? Can you provide adequate support for students who have special needs like language accommodations if the system itself doesn't adequately provide those accommodations? And then, you know, if not, you may need to limit how much you use it, even if it comes at the cost of giving up a, a cheap way for students to earn credits. And uh, my last question for you is, are there any opportunities here for future research, either for your team or for others who might be working in this arena? Uh, yes, actually, we 
our team is is currently working. Um, we're actually excited about the opportunity we have. We received a grant from the JPB Foundation, and we are working now to link earnings data, labor market data. So we'll be following the students in our study district after they leave high school to look at, you know, both you know, what happens to them in the labor market as well as in their post-secondary education opportunities. So for example, if getting a degree, a high school degree, and if you earned it, you know, in part because you were able to take courses online and recover credits that you might not have had to graduate, if that opens the door to, you know, employment opportunities or post-secondary education opportunities that wouldn't have been available to you, and you actually succeed in them, then, you know, this might be worth it, even if it, it seems that the students may not have the same learning opportunities in high school. At the same time, we're concerned that if students get a degree without having learned, and then they, for example, get hired on the job and then can't perform important tests on the job, then in that sense, we might be, again, kind of dumbing down the high school degree where the employers will think, well, I guess the high school degree doesn't mean what it used to mean, right? Or you may get them access to post-secondary education opportunities, but then the students struggle because they aren't prepared because they didn't really learn as much in their online courses. And that could also have implications for the ability to succeed in post-secondary education. Well, it definitely is a a worthwhile area of research to keep an eye on going forward. So, Caroline, this is it's such a great study, and I encourage our listeners to go read it. The title is A Look Inside Online Educational Settings in High School, Promise and Pitfalls for Improving Educational Opportunities and Outcomes, and it's in the American Educational Research Journal. Carolyn Heinrich, it's been a pleasure speaking with you today. Thank you so much, Keith. I really appreciate the opportunity. Thanks for listening to this week's Research Minutes, presented by the CPRI Knowledge Hub. For more episodes of this podcast or to subscribe to this series, visit us at cprehub.org. That's C-P-R-E-Hub.org. To share thoughts on today's episode or to suggest future topics, follow us on Twitter at CPRI Hub. <laughs>